Welcome to The Disaster Project, a podcast about everything disaster. I'm your host, Dr. Larissa Unruh. According to the National Interagency Fire Center, as of August 30th, 2023, there are currently 88 large wildfires burning nearly 600,000 acres of land in the United States, with over 20,000 wildland firefighters and support personnel working to control the fire. That's right, it's fire season. This year was a little different. Despite the fact that this has actually been a less intense fire season than we've had in the last several years, this year the East Coast experienced several days of the health-threatening smoky conditions caused by the Canadian wildfires that sections of the West Coast experience nearly every summer. Additionally, the horrific outcomes from the fires in Maui have shocked and saddened the country. So now seems like the right time to learn about wildfires. Today, Adam Mendonca, the Branch Chief for Strategic Fire Risk Reduction at the United States Forest Service, talks to us about what constitutes a wildland fire, why it seems that the U.S. has been experiencing more intense fire seasons, and what goes on behind the scenes of a fire response, as well as what you can do to help protect yourself and your home from fires. Let's get started. Welcome to the Disaster Project, Adam. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got involved with wildland fire? Well, my name is Adam Mendoza, and currently I am the Deputy Director for Fire and Aviation Management in the Washington Office for the Forest Service. I started my Forest Service career while I was in college, so I have a degree in forestry from Northern Arizona University, and uh, while I was going to college, I uh, started working for the Forest Service in, as a firefighter. So in fire management, I worked on a hand crew on the wilderness district of the Gila National Forest, uh, started learning about that job as I was going to school and started thinking about what I wanted to do in life, where I wanted to be, really enjoyed the outdoors, really enjoyed the complexities of fire management. And so what to expand my career there. Currently, what I do is at the Washington office level, I'm part of the leadership team for fire and aviation management within the Forest Service. So really focus in on policies, procedures for how our program is run at a national level. Having been a firefighter, experienced what it's like to actually work on the ground in this profession, really felt like as I continued to move up, I could help and support not only the agency, but fellow firefighters in uh, trying to help us continue to improve our fire management. And so really my passion and interest is in taking a relatively complex situation in fire management and trying to help folks evaluate how we manage that complex setting and really looking at how our current policies, procedures, practices either help or hinder our ability to do that and look for ways to try to improve that. So Within the agency, though, I've worked at a lot of different levels. So I started as a firefighter on the ground, worked at a district, worked my way up through a supervisor's office. At one point in my career, I was a forest supervisor. So I oversaw the operations on forest and then into the Washington office. So I've got experience, at least within the Forest Service, at all the different levels of our agency. Awesome. So you work in the Washington office, but you're able to work out of New Mexico. Is that right? 
Yes. So the last position I held, there was a non-Washington office position, was the forest supervisor on the Gila National Forest in southwest New Mexico. And when I started looking at opportunities within the Washington office and continuing to advance my career, I uh, was able to locate a position that gave the option for staying where I was. And so I'm still linked to the Forest Service office, but that office is is in Silver City, New Mexico. So I feel very fortunate to have the opportunity to work for the Washington office, try to work at the national level, but still stay located out west where uh, I have a lot more roots, family, those connections. And so trying to combine what's good for the personal home life, as well as the connections then to the office working environment and the job that I do now. That sounds pretty perfect. When you were firefighting, were you wildland or were you structural or kind of both? So I was a wildland firefighter. I worked for the Forest Service. A couple of things to note. Structure fire versus wildland fire is very different. And while we may do some cross-training, primarily structure firefighters learning about wildland fire, if you work within the wildland fire community, so like in the Forest Service, we do not do structure. It is a very different type of firefighting, and it requires different equipment. And so I'm trained and have experience in wildland firefighting. I have an understanding of structured firefighting, but I do not have experience in that realm. Got it. Well, let's jump into the topic, which is fires. So you know all about it, wildland fires. Right now, everyone is talking about the catastrophic fires in Maui. Does that count as a wildland fire, in your opinion? It does. Just some clarification when you look at what a wildland fire is. Uh, So you've got structured fires. That's straightforward. It involves structures, so some type of building. Wildland fires are really fires that are burning where you have vegetation. And so that vegetation can include either grasses and shrubs or trees. And as you move across the United States, you find those scenarios all around places where folks live in the forest. So those fires that occurred in Hawaii were located, at least in part, in the wildlands vegetation. But as folks will know, those fires moved into then structures. So it became a combination of wildland and structured fire where it moved through those communities. Extremely unfortunate scenario, but one that we see all too frequently as we look at a lot of structures being built intermixed within the wildlands of the vegetation. And as fire moves across landscapes, again, it can transition from a wildland fire to structure or from a structure fire, because we also see that out into the wildland. So yes, it did include wildland fire as part of that scenario, but it was a mix. You had mentioned that it's basically like two different types of firefighting. So when you have a situation where it started off as one and then it moves to the other, how does the collaboration work between the structural firefighters and the wildland firefighters? Firefighting is definitely... Uh, an integration of different types of firefighters or departments. And we have different jurisdictional authorities that play into that. And as an example, if you have a fire that's moving across the country in vegetation, so it's a wildland fire, oftentimes you've got federal agencies like the Forest Service or the Bureau of Land Management 
those folks that are more specialized in wildland firefighting that engage. And really, when you talk about fire, fire requires three components for it to, to continue to burn. You've got to have oxygen, you've got to have fuel, and you've got to have an emission source. And so when we talk about suppressing fire or stopping its movement across the landscape, you've got to take away one of those. And so we focus on burnable material, where you have firefighters engaged when the, the fire is out in the wildland. They're trying to dig fire line to remove that burnable vegetation. As that fire moves into more structures, the coordination starts between whatever agency or entity is fighting wildland fire and the agency or entities that then focus more on structure. And oftentimes that's going to be volunteer fire departments, municipal fire departments, those folks that have the equipment and the training to really then engage in structure firefighting. And so it is a coordinated effort where when you have a fire that's getting close to structures, those folks are focusing on what they're trained to do in those elements. And then the wildland folks are really focused on trying to slow down or prevent the fire from getting to those structures. And hot, dry, windy days, doesn't matter where you're at, trying to prevent fire from moving into structures can be very difficult. Uh, a little more to how it happens. So when you're engaged in, in fire operations, fire management, you have a person who is in charge. They're called the incident commander. So that person is directing all of the operations that are happening on fire. And it's just something to note that fire environments are very, very chaotic. There's a lot going on, stressful situations. You're trying to, to address a lot of issues at once. And so having folks clearly understand who they work for and what their assignment is, is critical to trying to ensure that you don't have people in a bad spot or, or getting hurt. And so you've got to have a strong structure over all of that. So you've got an incident commander. Because of the difference in the types of firefighters and what they're trained to do, when you start to have incidents that have both wildland and structure involved, you can set up what we call like joint leadership. There's, there's multiple ICs or incident commanders potentially, and, and they're working together, but they're potentially directing what their resources are doing on different parts of that fire in different ways. And so you don't have to set up that structure, but again, sometimes that does make it easier. What ends up happening is folks who are trying to do the structure protection are getting direction around what that looks like where they're engaging, how the fire's moving across the landscape. And, and at the same time, those folks that are not structure are still fighting fire adjacent to those structures and getting direction the same way. So it's a complex scenario when you look at fire management across the landscape. And when you start to intermix wildland with structure, it gets much more complex and so oftentimes, again, that collaborative approach where you've got one or two folks who have clear jurisdiction and authority to manage things becomes critical. It's one of the things I'll just note really quick that's always tough about fighting fire. In a lot of cases, you have uh, relationships that are formed between the different jurisdictions in an area prior to having any fire on the landscape. But it's not always the case. And so it's really difficult to build a relationship and manage something with a partner you've never met 
and do that when there are chaotic occurrences or things going on that are complex, like fire on the ground. And so that coordination and working together really does require, in most cases, to do it well pre-season before the fire ever started so that you know how that communication is going to work. And then that transitions into when you have a fire on the landscape, that, that coordination, communication, and understanding of everyone who's involved really starts to show up so that you can make those right connections and manage things collectively. So thinking more about Hawaii, I don't think a lot of people think about Hawaii when they think about wildfires. What happened this time that made it so out of control? Was it a lack of preparedness issue or was it a combination of like environmental factors? Just what happened there? I actually can't tell you the specifics on Hawaii, but something I want to touch on that I, I can really reinforce, which potentially connects to Hawaii in that situation. When we look at just the fire environment, dry vegetative conditions are a normal contributing factor to when we see larger fire growth or more active fire. Then you get these hot and dry conditions, so low relative humidities, high temperatures, and normally wind accompanying that makes for just sort of the perfect scenario, doesn't matter where you're at, to see this larger fire growth. I, I would say when you look at the Hawaii scenario, I would expect it's got similar contributing characteristics to what we see, regardless of where you're at again uh, in the United States. One thing to note, not specific to Hawaii, but as we just look at those characteristics is how frequently those characteristics are occurring, especially in the Western United States. Doesn't exclude any part of the United States. They occur anywhere, but they're more common out West. And that is we're seeing changes in our moisture patterns. So when we get moisture, what the, the form of that moisture shows up in. So is it rain? Is it snow? And what we have seen in recent years is that we have drier conditions than what we've seen historically. So whether we don't get as much snowpack or we get hotter sooner in the year, and so that snowpack melts off and our fuels dry out. Also just seasonal temperatures, how warm it gets and when it hits those, those seasonal highs, uh, we're seeing more days that are, that are hotter, drier than historic. And so again, when you look at those factors, those are common factors that will contribute to more active fire when you do have a start and more rapid fire growth. Again, I, I can't tell you specifically Hawaii, and, and to be honest, at the time, I was not tracking all of those indices that can result in larger fire growth. But I think as we look at just fire in general, those are those characteristics folks should be aware of. And those things that folks really, if you're interested in it, can go back and look. We looked at August 16th today, one year ago, what was the weather like? Five years ago, what was the weather like? 20 years ago, what was the weather like? And if you really start to track that, you can see some of the trends that relate to some of the fire behavior and activity that we're starting to see or we're experiencing, but again, can relate to larger fire growth. I'll just point out one example this year. It's been a less active fire season than in previous years. But again, I would encourage folks to take a look at what the moisture has looked like over the course of this year. And that moisture, when we've received it in the total amounts that we've received, helps us with things like just how dry or how wet our fuels are and therefore how receptive they are to actually burning if we do have a fire start. 
Okay, that answers another question I had. So one of my questions was that it seemed to me like the incidence of fire was increasing over the years since I've been paying attention at least. And I don't know if that was because I'm paying attention now or if that's actually the case. But it sounds like, yes, it is actually the case. And the reason is because it's drier, it's hotter, there's less snowpack, moisture. Is that generally correct? Yeah, in, ge- in general terms, there's a couple other things I want to add to that that I think are important for folks to know. I'll go back to, I said, you really need a couple of components for fires to actually burn. You got to have oxygen, you got to have a fuel source, and then you got to have some type of ignition point. Focusing really quickly on that fuels component, that source that the fire actually burns through the material. So we have been, we as an agency, and we're not the only agency, but we as an agency have been suppressing fires for a long time, more than 100 years. And what occurs over time because of that fire suppression is that we start to see more fuel, more material across our landscapes that can burn. That's in the form of grass and brush and trees. And so to your point, that not only does changes in weather and moisture contribute to the types of fires we see and potentially the number of fires we see, but in addition is just the vegetative condition. So 100 years of fire suppression has increased the amount of fuel that is out there that can burn. And so as you see hotter, drier conditions, and that material is drier, more readily available to burn. When there's more of it, you start to see higher intensity fires, fires that are more difficult to actually manage and try to stop their movement. There are contributing factors to why we're seeing the number of fires or the sizes of fires that we're seeing that all come together to to paint this current picture. In addition, one other thing I'll just throw in there that is a contributing factor to the number of fires we see are human-caused fires. More fires are caused by humans than any other source. And that comes through a lot of different reasons. As an example, abandoned campfire. Someone has a campfire because they're out enjoying the outdoors. They think they put it out, but they didn't do a thorough job. And that old classic saying, where there's smoke, there's fire. And so given a little time, there's an ember, it smokes a little, it starts a flame, little wind on it. And all of a sudden you've got an ember outside of the fire ring. You've got to start. And uh, we see more human caused fires than anything else. And so when we look at the number of fires, an additional factor associated with that is just the number of human caused fires we see in a given year. There's a lot more people that get out and enjoy the forest, or there are a lot more homes built or being built into that wildland area, the vegetative area we talked about earlier. And so when you start to have that intermix of people and vegetation, for a lot of different reasons, we get human-caused fires. And so that's another contributing factor that really influences the, the numbers that we see in a given year. And it does ebb and flow, just like the number of fires we see started by lightning as natural occurrences. But the combination of lightning and human cause, that's what makes up our fire load. And we have, over time, seen an increase in those total number of starts. Okay, so just a follow-up question. 
are we actually making the intensity of the fires worse by suppressing them to some extent? Should we be getting rid of the dry brush more and doing less suppression? Like, what is your opinion on the mix of that? I like your question here. This is a good one because this one to me is a key for folks to understand. I, I just want to touch on one concept before I answer your question. And that's the concept of good fire versus bad fire. For me, there's not really a good fire and a bad fire. There are unfortunate and unwanted consequences that do occur on fire. But what folks really need to, to understand is that fire is a natural part of all of these ecosystems. It naturally occurs. So even if you remove the human-caused fires, we get lightning and we get it everywhere. And fire, in its natural role, helps reduce the amount of fuels that are across the landscapes. Again, I mentioned 100 plus years of fire suppression has resulted in the buildup of fuels. In a lot of cases, we have an unnatural amount now of fuels. They've gotten to a level that historically has not occurred on these landscapes. And so when fire burning across the landscape, just doing the natural thing, where it becomes a problem is when it runs into things that people value, like homes or even ecosystems. But then in that case, it's potentially burning in a way that is like not natural or destructive to an ecosystem. So it's not really a good or bad fire. Fire is just fire, but how it moves across the landscape and the impacts it has to the things that we consider as people important is really where that context starts to come in. And I frame it because to your question, we really do need to take an active approach to how we manage fire manage in a moment so that fire is able to play its natural role and it doesn't have the negative impacts to those things we think are important. When I talk about management, really that is trying to allow fire to, to be a part of these ecosystems and we as people need to figure out how do we live with fire, recognizing it is a part of these environments. It's not something we're ever going to eliminate so to be able to live with it, we really do need to reduce the amount of fuels that are across our landscapes. And that is a seriously daunting task. And I say that because of just the sheer acreage within the United States that has vegetation on it. There's gigantic swaths of landscapes that don't have homes. They're vegetation. A lot of it is public land, which is an amazing thing in my mind where folks get to go out and enjoy the outdoors. Because it's such a major undertaking to reduce the amount of fuel that's out across our landscapes, it takes a lot of tools in the toolbox. So things like tree removal, so harvesting trees, and that can be to actually utilize those trees for some type of commodity or just removing those trees to get them off the landscape so that there are fewer trees, less fuel. So that's the standing component, reducing the amount of material on the ground. Because as folks know, as trees grow, they're growing needles or leaves. Those fall off, they fall to the floor. At the same time, trees grow, they die, they fall over. You've got vegetation like brush and or grasses, boards, flowers, all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's growing on the forest floor. Uh, all of that stuff contributes to fuel. So uh, not only removing the trees, but then also looking at how do we remove the stuff on the ground. In the vast majority of cases, the way you do that is through fire. 
prescribed fire, such an important part of the management piece, as well as the natural fires that occur. And again, natural fire, it is an important component of these landscapes. It's just trying to manage that so it doesn't have those negative impacts on things we value. If you can combine all of those elements, removing vegetation through some type of mechanical, removing uh, vegetation or the buildup of vegetation, utilizing prescribed fire, or where the opportunities present, you've got a, a naturally ignited fire through lightning, and that is playing its natural role. All of those together make up that fire management component that really is important. And to me, you nailed it when you say you've got to reduce the vegetation, less fire suppression, so that we've got more fire on our landscapes to help us reduce that vegetation and create healthier ecosystems, more resilient ecosystems, so that when they have fires in the future, those fires are not as destructive. They don't burn with the same intensity or severity. But I do want to point out that Less suppression in itself is difficult because, again, we've got a hundred years or more of fire suppression that has resulted in the buildup of fuels. And so it's not as simple as just saying, well, we're not going to suppress these fires because they're going to help us reduce the amount of fuel that is out there. Under the right conditions, it is a decision option that should be considered, but it really it's, it takes the right conditions. And so there's a lot that goes into how you make that decision and how you actually try to implement it to be successful, to get the desired results you want without having those negative impacts to those things that we consider important as humans, once again, which is kind of where I started with that. So I think you bring up a great point. You're really in alignment with where we need to be. It's just, there's a lot of complexity around how you do that that makes it very difficult. Is that primarily the Forest Service role to do the, the fire prevention and the prescribed burns and the responses, or are there other organizations that help out with that? So there are a lot of organizations that help out. The Forest Service has a role, and it's a very active role in helping with fire prevention. So that includes education of the public and homeowners. And when I say that, just real quick, like an example of education, how do you put your fire dead out? and ensure that it's dead out. So we have fewer caused human fires, escape campfires that start wildfires. And so there's a prevention element. Um, when I talk about homeowners, there are things you as a homeowner can do to improve your home's defensible space, which means it's more resilient. If a fire does start and approaches that home, it's more resilient to that fire, the higher probability that you're not going to lose your home. There's nothing you can that's 100%, but there are things you can do to really improve those scenarios. So we have an active role in prevention. We have an active role in fire management, which includes uh, prescribed fire, responding to either human or naturally caused fires in the wildland, where it's located on Forest Service administered lands. But we are definitely not the only either agency or individuals that have responsibility. Like as an example, there's other federal agencies like the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service. They have land bases where if a fire starts on their land base, they have a, a responsibility to respond just like the Forest Service does. And they make similar decisions in how they approach that. But in addition to the feds, then you've got like states. So there's state land out there. And each state has its own makeup of state land where they've got responsibility. 
Then you've got private land and you've got private land that is still made up of vegetation. So in many of the states, there's some type of forestry type department. Can be called a number of different things depending on what state you're in. But that group of folks specializes in wildland or vegetation-based fire, much like we do, but they're doing it on a jurisdiction that we don't have authority or responsibility for. It's that private land component. And then in addition, there's responsibility for uh, more of the home, that interface component. And to me, when you ask your question, I feel like it is everyone's responsibility to understand and take an active role in how we manage or prevent fires, depending on, on where you sit and how you engage. And, and I say that, again, having homeowners that are really aware of what makes for defensible space, having homeowners that understand why prevention is important and what they can do to help contribute to that success, that is as equally important as some of the efforts we have when we get a fire that starts. As I stated earlier, we get more starts from human-caused than any other source. That makes prevention and individual people understanding what that means. It makes it really important because uh, if we were able to even cut down on the number of human-caused fires, it would help us in our overall efforts to manage fire and, and do it in a way that we are successful. When I say that, one part I'll just link to that is oftentimes when humans cause fires, so human caused element, they tend to start closer to homes. You have homes that are built right up against the vegetation. So as homes continue to expand into more of the wildland, if a fire starts near that home as a result of someone in that home, for whatever reason, there's normally lots of homes around it. And so you automatically got a more complex situation because of where that fire started. And so again, having folks understand what that means, understand how they can help everybody collectively be successful uh, with this issue. It's pretty important. In my mind, everyone has ownership of this issue and everyone needs to understand how they show up and be a part of the solution. A couple of follow-up questions. You had mentioned defensible space. Could you define that? One thing to note about the work we do is there's a lot of science that goes into it. And so this specific piece has a lot of science around uh, how you defend a home or make a home more defensible to a fire. And so really for most of the science, what you'll see is it breaks it down into zones around the home. Within the zone closest to the home, it's the bullseye, it's right where the home is located. There are certain things you wanna do with that home to make it more defensible to fire. Here's a, a simple example is what the roof itself is made up of. So if you live in an area that has frequent fire, it's really driven by the ecological conditions, having a metal roof is far better than having a shake shingle roof. And you don't see new homes really built with shake shingles, but if you've had a historic home, an older home, it very well may have shake shingles on it. So what happens with shake shingles, as an example, is if an ember lands on it, it can start a fire. Versus if there's a metal roof, ember lands on it, it burns itself out without starting a fire on that home. So that's defensibility of your home itself. You build with, with fire-wise material, you think about those things. And then if you go to the next circle out from the home, you start to look at things like the vegetation that comes right up to the home. 
not having trees touching your house, as an example, can be important because if uh, you have a fire move into where there are homes and there's vegetation right up against the house, it'll carry fire right to the edge of the house. And normally that's gonna burn hot enough that you're still gonna get home ignition. In this case, even if you've got a metal roof because it's potentially igniting the, the side of the home. Uh, same thing with like grass. You don't want tall grass right up to your house because if the fire starts, it can ignite the grass, move right up to your home and ignite the home. And then as you move the next ring out, you start to look at, do you have spacing between your trees as an example? Something to know for folks is that there's different kinds of fire. So there's fire that stays on the ground. It's just a ground fire. Oftentimes that's a desirable fire because it tends to be lower intensity, lower severity. It's cleaning up all that material on the, the forest floor and the grass. That fire though can still burn your home down if you have grass right up to your home. So while it's more desirable, it still can be a threat. Then we have what we call dependent crown fire. So dependent crown fire is fire that actually requires enough heat from the surface. So like uh, grass, brush, and down trees burning to support the crowns of trees to burn. The crown fire is dependent on the heat being generated from the ground fire. Dependent crown fire is something that we see more and more. Um, and I'll go back to when you look at the amount of fuel loading that we see across the forest. When you look at that makeup. More fuel loading means there's more stuff on the ground burn. It can generate a lot more heat. It will help support a dependent crown fire. And then you've got independent crown fire, which really just means it's a crown fire. So it moves treetop to treetop and does not rely on the heat generated from fire on the surface. Independent crown fire is more rare. It takes it a really hot, dry, windy day in most cases to get independent crown fire. It's just not near as common. So one of the things you can do to reduce the probability of losing your home during those, and I talked about that second ring, if you're cleaning up the grass, you're cleaning up the forest floor, you know, limb up your trees a little bit as you get near your home, you're really preventing dependent crown fire from getting there. So you've cleaned up the surface, and so there's not that surface material to generate that heat. And because independent crown fire is a lot more rare, if you've done that surface work, you greatly reduce the probability of fire directly impacting your home. That third circle, we talked defensible space, really helps you with that independent crown fire. So you start to space out your trees and make sure the canopies don't touch and overlap. And if the canopies of trees don't touch and overlap, the probability of getting either dependent or independent crown fire that moves towards your home, it really, it really goes down. So defensible space really looks at the things you can do around your home in circles, like the home itself directly adjacent to the home, maybe up to 100 yards from your home in a circle where you're trying to manage the vegetation. So you clear and keep the underbrush cut down, you thin your trees so that they don't overlap and touch. People love trees, so you don't want to cut them all down, but uh, just having some spacing there. And by doing that, you greatly reduce the probability of fire actually impacting your home. Now, there's, there's one last element to it that folks should know, and that is when a fire is burning and you got a bunch of smoke, it will release embers, so hot pieces of material, into the smoke, which then travel and they land out in front of the fire. And so uh, going back to that metal roof example, 
you can do a lot to build defensible space around your home. But if you don't do something like change from shake shingles to a metal roof in this example, you can still have your home impacted by fire and ultimately lose your home because embers, it's amazing how much fire they will start when embers start falling into a community in amongst homes. And when you start looking at the receptive components of a community, those embers can start a lot of fires because of that. So defensible space, starting with the home and working your way out, is really important. And again, it takes all the elements of that to truly collectively reduce the threat to your home. If you just do one or the other, while it improves things, it's not as efficient as doing all of the work, again, within those different rings to truly try to reduce the threats to your house. So are independent crown fires, are those basically always started because of lightning? Or can they be started from a ground fire that then like moves up and then moves crown to crown? Yeah, so really independent crown fire is just the result of very dry, hot and windy conditions, but they can start from lightning or human caused. Doesn't matter whether you're talking about lightning or human caused. Those fires start as a single point on the landscape. So lightning hits a tree, that tree starts to burn. And as that tree burns, it spreads embers and then those fires spread. Or you know, they, they start really as a ground fire. Like it's just the single point that has started, but then it starts to grow. And the conditions, vegetative conditions, weather conditions, all of those contribute to how that fire is going to burn across the landscape. The same is true with human-caused fires. So take that campfire that I referenced earlier. Single spark blows out, lands on some type of material. It could be some leaves or grass that starts on fires, and then that starts to spread. And the conditions at the time are what are really going to drive that fire. And so if you've got really hot, dry conditions, regardless of if it was a lightning or human-caused fire, you can get independent crown fire or dependent ground fire, just really high fire intensity, which results in high fire severity. My second follow-up question to like the previous question was you had mentioned that there's like a ton of different agencies and there's the state, there's the local, there's independent contractors and everyone who's working for fire prevention and a response effort. With all of those different people working on it, how do you decide who does a prevention effort? Is it basically the local government's job to deal with that first, or is it start from federal? It really tends to be driven by jurisdictions. So when I say that, here's my example. If you have a national forest near where you live, there is an administrative boundary around that. They've defined here is the National Forest Public Lands. Within that boundary, the Forest Service tries to take an active role. So they try to drive prevention program the messaging. So that's an active role. If you're not on Forest Service, let's say you're actually on private lands or state lands, then that prevention effort tends to be driven by that jurisdictional authority. So the folks who have responsibility for that piece of ground. Jurisdictions sort of outline where people are going to work and who is driving. But the reality of what you see in the vast majority of places is that folks have been doing this work for a long time and they are good at it. Folks try really hard. And so it tends to be a cross-boundary approach. 
So although I point out you've got forest service land, so you got forest service that is is really pushing that effort, and you've got maybe state land or private land or some other jurisdiction, and they're pushing the effort. The vast majority of the times are those different entities are working together to try to make sure their messaging is similar and that the efforts are in alignment. Definitely don't want to give conflicting messaging or confuse the public with different messages that are not clear and concise. And so while there's normally a lead agency or a lead organization, much of this work is done in collaboration. And it's what really makes it successful because fire doesn't, it doesn't know boundaries. So it's going to burn across the landscape regardless of jurisdictions. It's going to burn across the landscape based on more of the vegetation, the wind, the topography. And so having cross-boundary coordination and connecting those dots so that everyone is working together is really the best way to be successful. It, it maximizes how you either are successful in a prevention program or how you respond to a fire when they start when there is a fire and a wildland crew responds, what does a response look like? Is So when I think of firefighters, I, I was a structural firefighter for a while before med school, but basically what we did was we sprayed, you know, water and there was often foam. I feel like it's a little bit different. And you had mentioned that a lot of wildland is more like trying to protect the space that hasn't yet burned and you're not focusing quite as much on the actual fire. Is that correct? Like, what do you do to try to control a fire? When a fire starts in the wildland, the very first thing you do is try to get a size up on that fire. So you're trying to figure out where is it, how big is it, and how's it burning? Because oftentimes it takes just a little while. And we have, I would say, pretty sophisticated fire detection, either technology or we still can do it old school and do it with people. We get a lot of phone calls from the public who see when fires start. So to get that detection... You go out, you try to, to do a size up on that fire. As part of that size up, you start identifying values. And those values are important because it starts to tell us what we need to worry about and how we're going to deploy our resources. And so when you talk about just the fundamentals of trying to manage a fire and keep it, in this case, as small as possible, in the wildland community, again, we rob the fire of available stuff to burn. So they build a fire line. And a fire line is really only at maximum about 18 inches wide when you have people building it. If you have like dozers, and folks will see that on TV, of course they're much wider because a dozer has a gigantic blade on it. But, but when people, firefighters are, are building that fire line, you're digging about an 18 inch wide line. And basically, you're clearing all of the material down to mineral soil because mineral soil doesn't burn. So you got to get through all the duff and the woody material and you dig that line right along the fire's edge. And what happens is when the fire burns up to that edge, it's got no more fuel to burn. It goes out. It used to be that the safest way, well, and I say used to be, I should clarify this. It still is the safest way, but we're finding it's Things have changed a little bit, but the safest way to dig fire line is with one foot in the black. And that's what firefighters are taught when they first start going through training. And what that means is you are standing right on the fire's edge. And the reason that's the safest way to, to build fire line is because when there's a problem, you can simply step over the fire into the black. It's already burned. You get out of that fire's way if you need to. 
What we see, though, because of the increase in fuel loads, so that buildup that we talked about earlier, is that the fire intensity right at that point where fire is burning nowadays can be pretty hot. And as a person, you can only stand it to be so hot before you just can't stand there anymore. And so we have to consider the type of fire behavior, and I, I referenced this in the size of, we have to consider the type of fire behavior we're seeing to, to know how we're going to engage that fire. Do we have the ability to go dig fire line with one foot in the black, as folks are taught, or is the intensity along that fire edge such that we've got to back off? Ultimately, if we back off to do something different, we are still taking the same tactics. We're going to implement something that tries to take or rob that fire of material to burn. We're just going to do it with a buffer between us and the fire because we can't stand right up on that edge. It's just too hot, too intense. If we are going to not be directly against that fire, so we've backed off, oftentimes we do what we call a burnout operation. And really, it's because we're trying to remove the vegetation up to our line. Because if fire is too intense when it hits that fire line, high probability it's going to go over that fire line. And so you've got to take appropriate action to try to increase the probability that that fire line is going to stop that fire. And so it's a common tactic folks will see. So in, in addition, and you mentioned foam, so I just want to point out, there are some times that the Forest Service uses foam. It's pretty infrequent. We also use retardant. And I'm sure folks, if they've watched TV at all, have seen the aircraft or the helicopters that are dropping either water or retardant. Oftentimes, retardant is red or pink in color. What I want folks to understand is that it's retardant. It doesn't put the fire out. It suppresses the fire's movement. So really, retardant is designed to reduce the amount of oxygen that a fire is taking in as it's burning. But it doesn't totally rob the fire of oxygen. And so while it will slow the fire spread, it doesn't stop it. And so if you get a fire that is burning hot enough uh, that you can't dig fire line right up on it, having support from like a slurry drop, a retardant drop, it's helpful to slow that fire so that you can get that line completed, but it doesn't put it out. You really got to have firefighters on the ground building that fire line that ultimately robs the fire of vegetation to burn to truly secure it. And so aviation resources are an important component of the work we do, but they don't solve that problem. And I don't think folks always realize that they, we get a lot of questions of, well, why didn't you just put it out with, with aviation? And it just doesn't work that way. And I've been on enough fires as a firefighter to see the results of, of dropping slurry and what it does to fire and how it slows its progress. But I've been on enough to see fire, we say, eat through the retardant line. It just slowly moves through it and then it's back up and and moving once it's through those lines. And so if you don't have firefighters on the ground digging that fire line, you don't have an effective way to actually stop the, the progress of fire. So in the simplest terms, that's what firefighters are doing. And I referenced when I started answering this question, values. If there are homes, as an example, near a fire, then we try to develop a strategy very fast for how we're going to try to have manage this fire so it doesn't impact those homes. It might mean that you've got to have resources at the home trying to build some defensible space around that home and fire. They're going to have to try to 
to have fire go around that home without impacting it because they don't have enough time to secure the whole fire. Or it might mean you have firefighters that they're going to be able to put a fire line around that fire and stop its movement. There are a lot of variables when you show up that you have to assess and determine how many folks do I have? How much time do I have before this fire gets to a value? And what is the action that has the highest probability of success for achieving whatever desired results I want to see? And while we we are very good at that, we are professionals who train to that, there's always uncertainty when you have fire on the ground because it's mother nature, it's a natural disaster. And sometimes even in our best efforts, we're not able to achieve those desired results that we want. We do all we can and still fire goes into areas that we don't want to see it go into. That's in general terms, what you're trying to look at or how you're trying to approach it and what you try to achieve. So when you drop the retardant, is it you're dropping it on the the unburned areas? You're not directly dropping it onto the fire, correct? It depends on what the objective on the fire is. In most cases, you're dropping the retardant right out in front of the fire. So you're correct. You're, You're actually dropping it on that leading edge right in front of it so that as the fire hits that vegetation, it's already covered with that retardant so that, again, it's going to slow down the movement of fire. Sometimes they'll drop on a fire, and that depends on the scenario. Again, sometimes you've got rapid moving fire, like let's say in grass, where a slurry drop on top of it actually will really slow it down. And if it's in grass, sometimes we'll put it out enough. But if you have any type of heavier fuel like brush or trees, that's where it doesn't actually put it out. So it just depends. I wouldn't say there's a single answer for each case. It's it's really going to depend on the fire itself and what those objectives look like and what folks are trying to achieve. Can you talk a little bit about the different types of wildland firefighters? So like hot shots versus the hell attack crews versus smoke jumpers. What What are those terms? We have a lot of different firefighting folks, and most of the the difference is in how they get to an incident. So we have engine crews, and engine crews are just that. They drive around in an engine, and there are different types of engines, and they're classified by levels, type 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. As an example, many wildland fire engines are type 6s or type 3s, and the size is dependent on how much water they carry. Type 6s are the smallest. When you get into structure, they don't really carry water, then they hook to fire hydrants. But those are type 1 and type 2. Those are the big engines you see in town, municipalities. So our engine crews drive around in engines, and they carry some water, not a ton of water. They tend to be very effective when you look at like a, an escaped campfire, but that's small. So they can attack that fire with water, but they're going to get there in an engine. Then from there, we have hotshot crews. Hotshot crews are 20-person to 25-person crews that tend to be utilized on larger fires, not the small fires, but it's because they can construct fire line relatively quickly. That number of individuals working together, they move across the landscape pretty quickly. Those crews tend to be what, what we rely on when we look at larger fires and trying to implement large-scale management to these larger fires. You'll hear a lot about hot shots. From there, we have hell attack and or hella repellers that work with helicopters. All of our helicopter operations have to have qualified folks. And so hell attack are those qualified folks. They help 
load stuff into helicopters, whether it's people or stuff under them like cargo. The repeller components of those groups actually repel out of the helicopters and it's how they access fire. So you have a lightning caused fire in a remote location. We fly folks in a helicopter to that and they repel out of that helicopter. They begin to engage that fire just as we discussed in the last question. It's a delivery system. But we use helicopters for more than just delivery. Again, they do water or bucket drops. They'll deliver cargo. We have smoke jumpers. So smoke jumpers are firefighters, but they get there by jumping out of an airplane and parachuting in. And it's a long-standing practice of the Forest Service and the BLM. Again, same philosophy or concept where you have a fire start in a remote area. These folks are going to fly into that area they're going to assess the situation and then parachute into the fire and engage that fire. One thing to note, regardless of the type of delivery system, is that for us, our firefighters go through standard training. There is specialty training associated with repelling out of a, out of a helicopter or even being on hell attack and working with that helicopter so you know what you're doing. There's special training for smoke jumpers how you exit an aircraft, how you land, or how you control a chute. So there are specific trainings for those folks. But when it boils right down to once you're on the ground and you're engaging that fire, all of our firefighters go through the same training. And so this is one of those keys for us where we distinguish between wildland fire and structure. Our wildland fire training is very defined. We try to make sure we provide the highest level of training so that our folks are skilled enabled to address those high stress situations. We don't get into structure type firefighting. It's just a very different component. Again, to ours, once you once you get into that commonality, they are our firefighter. Doesn't matter how they got there. We utilize all of the resources to help increase the probability of our success for addressing fires regardless of where they start. Because again, in my examples, a lot of human-caused fires, like within the wildland urban interface, so where the homes are built right up against the wildland, the vegetation, engines are very effective there. If those fires grow fast, they are complex because of the structures. So having water and firefighters who can deliver that is critical. Yet, if you get a fire started in the back country and it can get larger and then really move quickly toward homes, that can be an issue as well. So having a delivery system like helmet repellers or smoke jumpers that can insert themselves in an efficient way to engage that fire is critical as well. So a lot of different tools trying to maximize the opportunities for how we engage fire. I was just looking at the map, like the current fire map, and there's literally thousands of fires going on in the U.S. right now. With so many fires, how do you decide where your resources go? It's funny you say that. This year has not been as active, although it's getting more active. And so at any given time, there can be a lot of activity across the United States. And in this case, in this year, Canada as well, huge player, which we tried to support and help. When fires start, there is an incident commander, which I referenced earlier, on every fire. And that incident commander does an assessment for what do I need for resources to achieve whatever objectives I have defined. So then the question becomes, can you get the resources you've identified? And when you start ordering resources, we have a very specific and defined process where you put an order in that goes to what we call a dispatch center. 
So our dispatch center is going to take that order and see if there's someone available in the system because all of our firefighters go into the system when they're available to go out. They're going to put it in the system and see if they can fill that order. And if they can, if there's someone available, then within that system, they're going to basically send them a note that says, we need you on this fire by this day. But what happens when you get as many fires burning as we have right now, so it's the busier time of year, we start to have to make trade-offs in where we send resources. So we don't have enough firefighters to respond to every fire in the way that the ICs would like. So they develop a strategy. They say, I need five shot crews. Well, there may only be four shot crews available. And so they then have to adjust their strategy knowing that they're going to be one shot crew short. So how do I change how I approach this to incorporate the number of resources I've got? And so what happens when we start to have to decide where we send resources is there are groups and they're made up of the leadership of the different fire management agencies like the Forest Service, the BLM, the Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs. It's a collective group of everyone who's got that responsibility, has resources. And that group starts to then, when those orders come in, starts to assess those orders. And really, they assess them by looking at where the fire is, what all the fire is threatening, how long those resources are needed, so what's the duration. And then they basically work with those dispatch groups to say, hey, this is where the resources are going. And so it's relatively complex because it happens very fast, but it is a system that is well-defined. It's been in use for a long time. And so it is a well-oiled machine. But these folks work long hours, lots of days during the fire season. They don't, they don't get a lot of days off there. But it's important that, that they're together and they're making these decisions so that we're managing fire for the collective. It's the entire fire picture, not Forest Service is managing ours and then the BLM is managing theirs and the Park Service is managing theirs because we would all be competing against each other. And so in this system where we bring everyone together and get that collaborative approach, all of the jurisdictions are represented so that those decisions are made as a group. And again, so, so what we do as a firefighting system we classify what the planning level is. So PL one through five, five being most fire activity, strained resources, the most difficult. As an example, as of today, which this may change, so I want to emphasize it is as of today, we nationally are at planning level three. That gives us an indication of how many fires are out there, how active those fires are, what the weather projections are, how many resources are deployed. And we track that stuff because as we move into planning level four or in those real bad years, planning level five, it is an indicator that fires are very active. We've got a bunch of fires. There's not a lot of resources left. A lot of trade-offs have to start happening. And so it helps those groups understand where we're at. And as they make those decisions, what those impacts might be. So it takes a lot of coordination to move the resources around to try to address when you just get the sheer number of fires going that sometimes we have going. You had mentioned earlier that there had been some big advances in fire detection technology. What are those? This is an interesting sort of scientific area and technology development area. So in the old days, historically, we put people in lookouts. 
So that is a person standing in a tower on a high mountain with a pair of binoculars and a map right in the middle of, of the building. And every 15 minutes, they're spinning a circle looking, do they see smoke anywhere? I mean, that was, that was their job. And there are still locations today that do that. So I referenced when I very first started that I was a forest supervisor on the Gila National Forest. We still staffed quite a few lookout towers. We put people in them to help us detect. And it's because the Gila is relatively remote. So there's big chunks of landscape that don't have a lot of people in them. But that's where we started. So where we're at today, there are things like cameras that can be posted on like lookout towers, as an example, that you can operate from your desk and spin a circle. There is technology associated with sensors that will detect smoke. And so based on those detections can determine if there is a fire in the area. There are different type of planes or balloons, which can be launched that will actually, depending on the type, can fly for extended durations to detect fires. So if you have, as an example, lightning, so you, you get a thunderstorm, it's got lightning, you might launch a drone an unmanned aircraft and or a balloon that can go over the area where you've got lightning and detect starts. I mean, it detects smoke. So there's a lot of technology there and we continue to try to look how we can advance when it comes to technology. So continuing to look at opportunities for more balloon type technology that helps and or again, aircraft, unpiloted aircraft that can stay up for longer. 30 days as an example. So there's those kind of tests that are going on. And we continually try to evolve and advance our systems, whether it's detection or other components of fire management that help us with that. And I will say, even with all of the technology, one of the best methods we still have is just the general public. The public sees a fire, they see smoke, they call it in. You know, oftentimes we have detected that smoke already, that fire but not always. And so it's another method that can be an important component for how we get notification. So when you do identify a new fire, what kinds of communication strategies do you employ to let the community that might be impacted know? For the forest service on each one of our forests, we have public information officers. And so they help the forest with all public communication. When you get a fire, they help with that public communication. And so oftentimes it will go out to like local newspapers, local radio stations. It gets posted on the web. The thing to know about notification and this fine line is that we on the Forest Service side don't have authority or jurisdiction for things that happen on private, which includes things like evacuations. That's not our jurisdiction and authority. If evacuations are occurring, it's either occurring through a local sheriff who is making that decision or maybe um, state police or some combination of if there is a fire when it starts that is threatening a community, we not only try to put out notification through our channels, which I mentioned so that the public can hear about it, but we start contacting our partners like sheriff's office, emergency management local fire departments, so that we're all connected once again, and that those folks who have jurisdiction, like the sheriff's office, can start helping with those notifications. And that can occur with things like reverse 911, which is the system they're running, not us, but it is a great way to, to notify. It might include going door to door 
and knocking on doors to say there is a fire and we need you to evacuate. Again, that is actually driven by and occurs from the sheriff's office. We help. We want to be there and try to support and help if there's notifications, but we don't have that authority to actually tell folks they need to evacuate. So it's a combined effort when a fire starts to try to make sure notifications go out to the public. And the way those notifications go out is really driven by jurisdictional authorities. You know, if you get a fire that's it's in the forest, not near any homes. In addition to those early notifications that I referenced, you know, press release, radio, putting it on the web, we will then set up to have public meetings. And so we try to have public meetings that are frequent enough to keep the public informed on what the fire is doing, how we're managing that fire. We really do try to keep folks up to date on what is occurring. The fire, that environment changes rapidly. So it's always difficult to have the most up-to-date information. But We look for those opportunities to engage folks in ways that they can connect with us. So public meetings normally don't occur for the first couple of days. We have to get organized so that we can host a public meeting in a way that's going to work. But it's another avenue we use, again, if we've got a fire that's going to burn for longer, especially, well, even if they're near homes, but we've got to have a little more time. For communities that are in particularly fire-prone areas, are there resources available for those communities when it's not fire season to help with prevention? Yes, there are. So in this case, I'm going to tell you, we can get you some great information for resources available to folks that they can read, understand, and implement when it's not fire season. There's a lot of good resources out there that really can benefit folks. And so uh, oftentimes this stuff is, it's web-based, you know, just technology and the evolution. And so we can get you those, those websites and whether you provide them, you know, to your listeners or however you want to reference that. Yes, that would be awesome. And then I can just, I'll link it um, to the show notes. So what lessons have been learned from past wildfires that have really shaped how we respond today? I think the greatest lessons come from fatalities to either firefighters or the public. You know, you learn a lot from every fire, but when you have unfortunate and serious negative outcomes, you take a hard look at that fire to understand what occurred. And so as an agency, we're a learning culture. We try to continue to understand the fire environment and all the dynamics associated with that. Those fatality fires are driving forces for us. In addition, I would also just reference the change in the size, intensity, and duration of fires that we're seeing. In the last 10 years, have seen more large fires, hundreds of thousands of acres burned than we had in the previous couple of decades. So you start to take a look at why is that occurring? What is changing within the fire environment that is forcing us to change our strategies, tactics? And so that combination of lessons learned through fatalities and observing the changes in fire that we see over time really does force us to continue to evaluate and try to improve. And what is so difficult about that is that while those changes can be easy to see, the solutions can be difficult. And some of the difficulty with those solutions is because of the social norms. So in general terms, it's my opinion that the public expects that we can go engage fire and stop fires, put them out when they're small, put them out before they impact communities. While that is true in many cases, it is not always true. On the hottest, driest, windy days, 
fires move very quickly across the landscapes and they impact people in significant ways. And I'll actually go back to uh, Hawaii, which we talked earlier about with just how quickly a fire can move into a community and have devastating effects. And so as a society, understanding that we can't remove fire from the landscape, it's always going to be there. And the conditions that fires burn under is changing. And it's really important for everyone to understand how those conditions are changing and what it means for the future. More large fires that impact things that we value, it's the trajectory we're on. And we're going to continue to evolve in how we approach fires. But again, the scenarios or the parameters that influence all of this, they're, they're ever-changing. So we need to be aware of that. And what advice would you give to someone who is interested in forestry or fire prevention careers? It is a great career. I've really enjoyed my career. Just the level of training, the thrill or excitement associated with managing fire and the camaraderie, family feel to the agency I work in are all great. I think if you're really interested in this type of profession, reach out to your local Forest Service, BLM, state agency, depending on where you might want to work, and talk to them about not only the job they do, but the opportunities they have continually, at least in the Forest Service, need more people to support and work for us in support of this cause. We have a lot of firefighting personnel, but we also have a lot of vacancies or needs for additional folks. So there are opportunities out there. Strongly encourage anyone interested to try to engage folks who can help them get on a path. Most of our folks start as a seasonal so you're not a permanent full-time employee. You're going to do it for the summer. But after a couple seasons, our folks then tend to find opportunities where they can get permanent jobs and, and move up that way. And so there's some really good opportunity because of that seasonal component to even test whether you like this work or not. Uh, it's not for everyone. It's really hard work. You walk a lot. You have 45 pounds on average on your back as you're walking around and, and engaging in fire and so it's, it's physically demanding, but again, there are a lot of benefits to it. And so if, if folks have that interest, just encourage folks to reach out to their local unit, start there and, and look at ways they can try to get into this profession. All right. Thank you. And I like to end um, the podcast with stories. So could you briefly tell us a memorable fire response story that you had? Yeah. I might tell you one or two and you can cut out whichever ones you don't want. So, <laughs> okay, sounds um, good. I had been a firefighter for, I think it was about two seasons. And uh, I can remember being on a larger wildfire, no homes threatened. So we weren't, we weren't worried about structures, but uh, trying to manage this fire to reduce the impacts to the natural resources. And it was hot and dry one day, had some wind blowing and uh, we had short runs that were dependent crown runs. Okay. So I told you earlier, vegetation on the ground's burning, the trees start burning. We were a couple of miles from the fire and I can distinct, I can, I can just definitively remember the sound almost like a freight train. And it gave me personally a better idea of the type of power that we were talking about. We talk about natural disasters and you think about like tornadoes. We don't get out in front of tornadoes and try to stop them. Uh, hurricanes. We, we don't try to get out of the way and where you can't, you pick up the pieces after. And fire is very different. We, we deploy people 
to actually try to manage them and, and reduce their impacts. And when fire really gets to burning active, it's impressive just the power and the speed at which it moves. And so definitively remember that day in my career, probably never forget it. The next one for me, a go-to when I was on the fire crew and just all of the different places you got to go and see that I had never been before. And hiking, whether it was in Idaho on some really steep country, but hiking into fires, or if you happen to go down to Florida, and seeing fire burn across more of the marsh down there. So fire on top of the water because of the chemical makeup of the plants. Crazy stuff. I can remember just seeing some of those places burn in the day and then at night and the glow that comes off a of fire when you've, you've got it in those environments and it's dark around you and just what that looked like in that. Being out there with a crew with a common mission, though very specific memories associated with that and, and um, the enjoyment there. And the last one I'll end with, and this relates to the lessons learned things. So I moved from being a firefighter to being an agency administrator, which I didn't talk about during this, but you've got an incident commander who oversees all the firefighter resources. The incident commander works for the agency administrator. And so uh, I moved into being an agency administrator and really providing high-level direction to fires. And I can definitively remember the first fire assignment I was on when we had a firefighter fatality and just how that hit me and what it meant for me as an individual, uh, what it meant for the fire organization. And so I look at what I do now as a fire manager and where I try to, to affect national policy. And it's driven by those memories and the specific understanding of some of those things like a firefighter fatality and what it means. And so, you know, it's, a, it's another unfortunate memory, but one that I will forever have that influenced me as an individual, influenced my career. And uh, I think ultimately drives some of what I strive for in this agency when I look at how we manage fire. So fortunate event, but it's such a driving factor when you go through that, that it just sticks out when you say, hey, tell me a memory. Uh, a lot of great memories, but I've got a couple that stick in there that uh, float to the top when you say it because of the influence they had. Thank you so much. I know this went longer than expected, so thank you for sticking with it. Yeah, no problems. This is one of those things I'm super passionate about, so I can talk a while about. So I, yeah, I appreciate the conversation. Music track courtesy of Pixabay and composed by Alex Zavesa. I'm your host, Larissa Unruh. And I'll see you next time on The Disaster Project. Have an idea for a topic to discuss or know someone that you think would be great to interview on The Disaster Project? Send us a message about it. Email thedisasterprojectpodcast at gmail.com to let us know your thoughts, ideas, and suggestions. Can't wait to read them.